Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season two, episode three, and today we are going to be traveling back to 1959 and talking about Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. As always, I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Zachary Ortz, and I am joined just like each week preceding this one by my good buddy, Matthew Watkins. Hey, man, how you doing? Doing good. How about you? I am also doing well. We're uh, we're barreling towards Thanksgiving here, so I'm eyeing some time off and was able to go to the movies for the first time since the pandemic this past weekend. So I've been watching a lot of movies. From what I understand, you went to the movie theater like a bunch of times too, like getting it all. Well, on. I just went once on Friday to see Shang-Chi and then I'm going on Tuesday to see yeah. Eternals. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be... That'll be, yeah, it'll be be pretty awesome. So let's jump right in here and talk a little bit about our personal history for North by Northwest. So I'll go first because I've seen this movie before. So I have quite a bit of experience with Hitchcock, um, or at least quite a bit compared to you. I think I had tallied them up and I'd seen about 10 of his 50 or so movies. It's a little tricky to get a full number for him because not all of them have survived, as I understand it. But the numbers I was seeing was somewhere between 48 and 52. And so my parents had a copy of Vertigo in the house on VHS. And I watched it one time when I was sick and I was just absolutely bowled over by the movie. And so after that, uh, as any Hitchcock movies that we were able to get into the house, I watched. And I looked it up. So North by Northwest was released on DVD in 2000. And I believe for Hanukkah of either 2000 or 2001, although I'm pretty sure it was 2000, one of my parents got the other one a box set oh, wow. of the Alfred Hitchcock movies. And so I believe... North by Northwest was in there, and I would have watched this when I was either 13 or 14. So it did, and it was a movie that I liked a lot, but I have not revisited since then. It did not, it didn't jump into my upper echelon of Hitchcock movies, so not in the ranks of Rear Window or Vertigo, which I have seen multiple times since then. So I was pretty excited to go back and see one that I remembered fondly, but really didn't remember anything about other than the famous crop duster sequence. So yeah, that's that's my history with the movie. What I know you haven't seen it. So what expectations or what yeah, baggage it's did you a, bring into the movie? Like you said, I've seen a lot less Hitchcock. I've seen five different Hitchcock films and I've liked them all. So it's not is, you know, uh, I've just never been a person that's really decided to dive into Hitchcock in particular. But he has so many films and so many outstanding films that it's impossible, you know, not to experience Hitchcock in some way. Vertigo is one of my favorite films ever. And I saw Vertigo when I had seen... I had seen when the sight and sound list of the best movies of the century had come out and they had Vertigo at the top of that list. I thought, you know what? I have never seen 
this movie, I should probably watch if this is like supposed to be the best movie ever. I should probably go and watch this film. And I watched it and it blew me away because there was, you know, so much that's so fascinating about that film just from start to finish. And I had also seen The Birds when I was younger and it just creeped me out. And Rear Window is another one that I love. I've seen a few times. And so coming into this one, you know, uh, other than having an expectation of Alfred Hitchcock's style and his use of suspense and having read quite a bit on the techniques that he uses, I didn't really have too much of an expectation of what this film was going to be. I honestly didn't really know what it was about. All I knew was about the crop duster uh, scene. So I didn't know, like, Mm. what the story of the film was or who all was involved with it. I knew it had Cary Grant because I saw a picture of him on the, you know, on the on the logo, the splash screen for the movie. And otherwise, I went in completely blind to this one. Cool. I feel like that's a pretty a pretty good way to do it. I don't think you need to know a lot about the movie. But let's talk a little bit about 1959 and the time period and then we'll. We'll get into what we what we thought about it this time mm-hmm. through, or for you, your initial time through. So this movie was released on July 1st, 1959. Eisenhower was finishing out his second term, and if you happened to be listening to the radio at the time, the top three songs were, according to the Billboard Top 200 list, were The Battle of New Orleans by Jim- Johnny Horton, Lonely Boy by Paul Anka, and Personality by Lloyd Price and his orchestra. Ooh, and I did want to say one thing that I am going to do, just because I think it's kind of fun, is I'm going to take the top 10 uh, songs on the Billboard Top 200, and I'll put them into a Spotify playlist, and then that'll be in the show notes. So if that's something, I might be the only person who finds that interesting, but if that's something that you kind of dig, you can go ahead and pause the podcast and load up that Spotify playlist and really get in the frame of mind for 1959. One thing is there, I didn't look extensively, but you have to go pretty far down the list before you find, start finding rock and roll music, which was somewhat surprising to me. It kind of makes sense. You know, people were kind of, you know, uh, against rock and roll music at the time period so it's not surprising that it probably wasn't crossing across all demographics at the time so it was on the upswing people were listening to it's very influential but since it wasn't crossing over into every demographic it isn't going to be able to hit the same heights on the billboard charts yeah i mean elvis had i believe like a a couple years earlier but he was away I think he'd been called called to war around this time, so he didn't have anything coming out, or no new stuff. I think they had banked a few things, but they didn't do quite as well. So some big events that happened in 1959, I'll just run down them quickly. Uh, February 3rd was the <laughs> so-called Day the Music Died. That was the infamous plane crash where Buddy Holly and Richie Valens were aboard. And February was actually a pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty packed month. Uh, Fidel Castro arrived in Havana in January of that month and proclaimed himself the representative of the rebel armed force of the presidency. And then he would be recognized by the U.S. government, I think just a week later, and then by the by Russia 
maybe a day after that, and then he was formally sworn in on February 16th. The <laughs> the first Daytona 500 happened on February 22nd of this year, and then it was also a banner year for for jazz music. Jazz was really starting to would have a couple uh, banner records that came out this year or early 1960. So Kind of Blue started recording on March 2nd and then was released in August. And that's Miles Davis, of course. And then Giant Step. One of my favorites, by the way. Oh, I, is I it? I love Kind of Blue. Yeah, it's. In, I love Miles Davis. I love Kind of Blue. Yeah, that's cool to see there. Yeah, very, very famous one. And then uh, Coltrane was doing, started recording Giant Steps in March of this year, which was then released in January of 1960. And just a couple other... Oh, and Alaska was named the 49th state this year. That was something that hasn't always been around. The first Barbie was released. And then the last thing, which I think is kind of appropriate to talk about here, was Twi- uh, Twilight Zone premiered on in October of this year. Yeah, that's super cool. Twilight Zone has such a big impact on on film and cinema and television and visual storytelling and just thinking about this as being a pre-twilight zone movie is interesting yeah and the i mean twilight zone is more ostensibly horror but i always kind of think of like suspense and horror as being relatively closely thematically linked certainly in terms of scoring like i think you could drop the score for at least like half of this movie just straight into a horror flick and it would not be out of place. It seems accurate, yeah. And then, of course, the biggest overtones that are sort of rumbling all throughout here and were percolating for a little over a decade now and continue to percolate and roil until the early 90s is the Cold War between America and Russia and explicitly mentioned in this film, and I think ostensibly what you find out the sort of central conflict is, even though it doesn't really have anything to do with the movie. And so in in the Cold War, the December of 1959 was the first arms control agreement during this time period, during this so-called Cold War. So there were 16 companies companies, 16 countries that all agreed that they were going to set Antarctica aside as a scientific preserve. And two of those countries, of course, were the United States and Russia. Yeah, and the Cold War has such a big impact on film and stories, you know, and on the world, I guess, would be an important, you know, little factor there. But you can see it's this film is really fascinating because the, the way that it approaches espionage, you can tell that it's you know it's not that it's in the early days of the cold war because like you said it's about a decade in but it is just after the red scare the second red scare with joseph mccarthy and you start Mm -hmm. to see like the way that espionage films develop over the next three decades uh three decades is close to right what would that be two and a half decades of the cold war and it affects so much of the so much of the storytelling is connected to this war and the use of like soft power in communicating the different espionage espionage messages and it seems 
in some ways in this one a little bit, you know, naive with its perception of the Cold War. So naive isn't the right word. It's a little bit, it doesn't have the same practiced hand to it that later espionage films are going to have. Mm-hmm, for sure. And the the big thing that was sort of happening right here was we were in the midst of yeah. the space race. So Sputnik 1 had gone up in 1957, and then it would be another decade before we put men on the moon. And I believe I saw on the page when I was looking, the United States named their first seven astronauts oh, wow. in 1959. So it was, yeah, it was a, a fever pitch Race to, to, the moon. <laughs> to leave this stupid and all little the, rock. The microfilm yeah. of all the plans to get there and do things like that the state secrets that come up later in the film. And I think you had one other thing that you wanted to talk about here for a time period, yeah? Yeah, so after I would watch this film, I started to kind of, I saw all the action scenes and I wanted to kind of place where this was at in the history of action movies. So, you know, I went to look in scholarly journals about the history of film and trying to figure out where this place is. And it turns out that most film scholars place this as the first modern action movie. Uh, everything else beforehand is just not in the same vein. You have, before this film, you have the genre of swashbucklers, so like pirates and sword fighting and Robin Hood and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Afterwards, you have Japanese cinema has samurai movies and things like that that are going on, and that informs a lot of what's happening in American film. But at the same time, it isn't seen popularly across the United States until around a decade later, a lot of those films. So it's only real film buffs that were seeing it. And so they started kind of incorporating elements. And so this was, this is the first major, major action film. And there's a lot of techniques that come out of this film that we still see in action films all the way till today. It's interesting as you watch this one because it doesn't feel like, you know, it feels... Like, it is the first action film because the fights are just, you know, they don't have the same kind of choreography that we have nowadays. And the way that the scenes are built and blocked and all of those things, it's clear that they're kind of inventing this on the fly, finding some things that don't that work and some things that don't work. Uh, one of the really big things is the use of the action set piece, which is essentially invented in this film. And this idea of, you know, you have a big fight or action scene on some kind of, uh, you know, clever or or unique or novel location that makes requires the actors, requires the characters to respond in novel and unique ways. And especially here in the, the, the crop duster scene and the fight on Mount Rushmore, the two big action pieces from this one. And, you know, everything kind of starts rolling from there because of this film. The order was put in for Dr. No, the first uh, James Bond film, and it kind of reproduces a lot of the same techniques that show up here in North by Northwest. Yeah, that'll be just three years later in 1962. And because we had just seen the new James Bond film, uh, No Time to Die, the... I kept thinking about how much this seemed like a James Bond film. And so when I was watching it and I was surprised, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's just because we just happened to see a James Bond film or what's going on here. But then when I was looking at people talking about it later, 
a lot of people are like call this the first unofficial James Bond film. Yeah, and Cary Grant, the the main actor on the film, was asked to come play Bond and then turned it down, mm-hmm. uh, which is how we ended up with Sean Connery eventually. But it's it's wild to think of that you're watching this and just thinking. I couldn't stop thinking that it's. It seemed like they were just on the cutting edge of figuring out all these action scenes, and it turns out they were. This is the this is the beginning. Yeah, and I think if you build this film to like a modern audience as an action film, they would probably be pretty sorely disappointed. For sure, <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't really read like action sequences. But if you do look at it more as a thriller, then I then it becomes a lot more palatable i think i agree yes so let's let's use that to segue into what did you think about it how did it how did it hit you i enjoyed this one uh i didn't enjoy the film as much as a lot of the other ones that we've covered but there there was a lot of stuff that that i liked i liked the different set pieces that were put in i liked the performances a a lot of the writing felt a bit dated to me especially just you know all of the relationship and the dialogue between Cary Grant and uh, Ava Marie Saint just, it was a bit corny. And I thought, you know, uh, this, this, this dialogue probably wouldn't fly nowadays. But uh, I did appreciate all of these, from, from the standpoint of film history and the standpoint of how the film was put together, I really appreciated what they were trying to do here and trying to kind of invent they weren't trying to invent a new a new form of cinema, but they kind of are doing that because they're trying to tell this particular <laughs> they story. Tripped into they it. tripped into it. Yeah, and seeing all these different choices that they made were were really interesting. You know, Cary Grant is he's Cary Grant in this movie, and I don't know. It, it was a fun one to watch, but I don't know that I would go back and watch it a bunch of times after this. Yeah, I think that lines up with about how I felt about it. I think I couldn't stop thinking about this film when I was watching it in relationship to Vertigo. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it's like, man, if it came before Vertigo, I feel like I'd like it a lot more. But I was I was just thinking about having, if I had just seen Vertigo the year before and then come in to see this... Like, aren't I just going to see both twists with Eva Marie Saint coming from, like, 6,000 miles away? Which I feel like a lot of this movie hinges on, yeah. those those twists. But that being said, I still really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I love going back into these sort of time capsules. I had... I guess I, d- I had a pretty different experience from you with regards to the dialogue. Um, I definitely agree that it would not fly today, but I did find a lot of it really charming, and I felt like the two of them delivered that dialogue to each other so well that it would, like, we're going to, we'll talk about the train scene when we get into it, but I just loved their sexual innuendo so much oh that part i did love i just i was into that uh you know i call this uh in our little chat thread ahead of time the horniest film that we've (laughs) covered uh so far and i was very much into that like cary grant and Avery saint they're just 
you know, they are into each other, hands all over each other and everything. And th- that was a lot of fun. There's a few things in there that's just like, you know, Cary Grant and his uh, and, uh, Hitchcock and their kind of uh, perception of women. There's a lot of things in there that just threw me and I thought, you know, I just... It just wouldn't work nowadays as if, if you were Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But there was also some stuff like, <laughs> I think about the scene where he calls his mom from jail. And it's kind of a throwaway line, but he's on the, he's on the phone with her and he's trying to explain to her they poured an entire bottle of bourbon down, like, down my throat. And then he says, no, they didn't give me a chaser. <laughs> And I just thought that was like... That line was amazing. He, he, that was a great line, yes. It, yeah, and I thought there were a lot of cute little... I mean, they, they made Cary Grant's character like very witty and very sure. uh, quick on his feet and nothing really bothers him. Very suave, right? Yeah. So you can see the precursor for James Bond there. So anyway, so I enjoyed it. I didn't love the film (laughs) oddly enough i feel like it was probably about like 15 minutes too long i felt like i just expected it to be over sooner which oddly enough mgm also told (laughs) hitchcock to make it 15 (laughs) minutes shorter and he looked at his contract and saw that he didn't have to listen to them so he didn't cut 15 minutes i love it jeez and yeah (laughs) it's awesome (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Um, but I, having seen it, I also am glad they didn't cut the 15 minutes. You know, I can feel like a movie's a little bit too long to have the have the whole thing in there. For sure. I don't really care, you know. I can only imagine that if I was watching this back in, you know, 1959, that I would have really liked the film. I don't think it would have been near the, like, the top probably would have been near the bottom of the top 10 for my movies of that year, I would imagine. But it's one that I would have wanted to see and would have been excited to see. And then over time, just so many different things come out. I I doubt it would hold up in the same way as these other Hitchcock films have for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It is frequently listed as like one of his top movies, though. Like a lot of lists I was looking at had it up in the in the top five or so yeah it makes which sense after after rewatch i suppose is somewhat surprising but i don't know uh so let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the people here we can quickly go over alfred hitchcock because we've talked about him a lot so as i said he's somewhere around 50 films he was born in 1899 so that means he's spanning a couple a couple centuries here, barely. And one of the things that's interesting about him is his first 10 movies, I believe, were all in the silent film era. And then he transitioned into sound. And so he really went through all of these different periods in movies. He had his silent pictures and then his with sound, but in black and white, and then moved into the the world of color and had color in his films and so you can really go and watch the development of cinema if you want to sit down and watch all 50 of his movies and he was also someone who was just constantly trying to find 
new stuff and new things to do with his movies. One of his movies, Rope, is somewhat famously, it's not quite one continuous shot, but I believe it's like four different continuous shots. And then something like uh, Rear Window, the majority of the action, if not all of the action, all takes place being viewed out of the one room where Jimmy Stewart has been laid up because he broke his leg. Then Vertigo invents a lot of film techniques or uses them in kind of different ways. Things, uh, the way it uses things like dolly zooms and things like that are foundational Mm. to cinema. And even this film, uh, I think this is one of the things that uh, because I'm so used to Alfred Hitchcock and the way that he kind of uh, constantly is reinventing and making new techniques that I was expecting more of that from the cinematography angle in this one. And it feels it yeah. feels very much in place. This one, There's a few things that it does that are uh, unique for the time period, and that gets in particular into those action set pieces. But otherwise, the rest of the film is feels very much of its time and in its place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other really fun thing he did with the birds that I wanted to mention is... There's no score for that movie. Yeah. It's completely unscored except for bird sounds, both, I believe, real sampled bird sounds and then electronic ones that our boy Bernard Herman, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit, helped him out with. Oh, and the, the last thing I wanted to say about Hitchcock is obviously we're in 1959 here, and this run of films from him, so starting with Vertigo in 58, and then North by Northwest in 59, Psycho in 60, and then The Birds in 61 is just... It's hard to imagine having a better a better run of four films than that. It is. Yeah, those are, those are, <laughs> that is an incredible run of films, it really is. And then we do also need to mention, we don't have to dwell on it too much, but there have been, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was widely perceived as a genius and certainly by the end of his career had a lot of cachet and there have been allegations which seem pretty well founded in the last four or five years of sexual assault or sexual misconduct or sexual harassment not like a ton of details but certainly some stories of him like trying to kiss people without their consent and one of his someone who had worked for him said he had a joy of trying to shove his tongue down people's throats so that is obviously i mean there's no great words for it it's horrible it's reprehensible yeah and this is one of the things that as i'm watching the films i just kind of get that vibe from Mm -hmm. from films and his treatment of female characters that when i heard this news it just didn't surprise me because I feel yeah. like the films that he puts together kind of disrespect women in a, in some ways. Some of them deal with it a little bit better. I think uh, something like Vertigo is, is dealing with very complex things, though, you know, it still has some issues. But a lot of his other films just... I could tell that there's something about him that it, when I saw this news coming out, it just did not surprise me at all. Absolutely. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about Alfred Hitchcock before we move on? That's all for me. All right. So I do want to mention 
quickly the writer for this film. So Ernest Lehman wrote the screenplay for this. And some of his other credits are not exactly what you would suspect based on him being the screenwriter for this film. So he wrote the screenplay for The King and I, and also West Side Story, Sweet Smell of Success, and The Sound of Music. So obviously three of those are musicals. And uh, I think that's somewhat surprising, but he got hooked up on this product, product project because he was friends with Bernard Herrmann. And he said that he wanted to write the Hitchcock movie to end all Hitchcock movies. And he definitely wrote, well, you know, Hitchcock goes on to make several other Hitchcock movies, so it doesn't end them. Uh, but it definitely does. The screenplay, like I said, it just does something that wasn't being done beforehand. And uh, Ernest Lehman kind of creates something new. And uh, I, I think you can credit a lot of the the success and the the power of this film to the screenwriting here. Because he's coming up with these just unique and off-the-wall ideas for how the scene is going to be set and you know i think he does a great job here yep and then the last person that i wanted to talk about is bernard herman and the uh there there's some crazy coincidences here that we're going to get into but bernard herman what is just an unbelievable composer of this time he so his first movie was a little known flick called citizen kane sure and then that, yeah. yeah, just that little, that little guy. And then that same year, he did Devil and Daniel Webster, for which he won the Oscar. Uh, in 45, he did Hangover Square, which is not a movie that a lot of people probably know, but there's a reason that I'm mentioning it, which we will know soon. And then he also did The Day the Earth Stood Still. So he probably did, I think, like 10, 10 movies or so before he got hooked up with Hitchcock and his first Hitchcock movie is The Trouble with Harry and then he would go on to do Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds as we talked about and then Marnie before uh, they had a falling out because Bernard Herrmann couldn't write poppy enough score for (laughs) Alfred Hitchcock's next project. Well for Bernard Herrmann but one of just the classic uh, film composers and two of those films, Vertigo and Citizen Kane, are consistently at the top of most directors and cinematographers' lists of the best films of all time. They are, you know, basically back and forth, the two of those films, on Sight and Sound's list of the top films of all time. And it's incredible that they're both scored by the same person. Yeah. So do you want to hear... This is one of the most wild rabbit holes I think I've ever gone down. So, do you remember at the beginning of this movie when Cary Grant gets abducted and he says, I have tickets for the theater tonight? Yes. And of course I thought, well, I wonder what he could possibly have tickets for. And later he mentions that he wanted to go to the Winter Garden, so that actually makes it extremely easy to pinpoint what show he was going to go see. Do you know what show was running at the Winter Garden on July 1st, 1959? No, what's going on there? Well, nothing. But West Side Story had closed just three days earlier. Okay. And as we know, Ernest Lehman wrote the screenplay for West Side Story. 
And Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the score for this, is one of Stephen Sondheim, who wrote the lyrics for West Side Story. He's one of his largest influences. When he wrote the score for Hangover Square, so Hangover Square is a movie where it's about a troubled film composer who is trying to finish their concerto, finish his concerto, and the climax of the film is the concerto playing as the house burns down around him and there's a shot of the page of music shown for like i don't know a couple seconds and sometimes told this story that he has sneaked he he went back to see the film multiple times just so he catch a catch more glimpses of that (laughs) sheet of music to try and figure out what it was so we have that connection and then there's also this very strange thing, and it ha- it, like it has to be a coincidence. I spent a lot of time Googling it to see if anyone else had was talking about it. But the main theme for this movie has two odd synchronicities with West Side Story. So the main theme moves between this... It's scored for 3-8 in the sheet music that I was able to find, but it really moves between this 6-8 and 3-4 feel. Which, of course, like, was not invented by Leonard Bernstein, but was a rhythm that was popularized in America by America from West Side Story. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And And then the last thing is... In this, in this main theme, it does the dun 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 dun, and that dun 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 dun, which I'm singing incorrectly, is an interval of a perfect fifth, and then a minor second. But if you invert that, it would be a tritone and then a minor second, which is the famous. It's the melody that everyone learns for a tritone for Maria from West Side yeah, Story. Yeah. And I spent so much time Googling to see if there was like any way it was intentional or anyone else who had made these connections. And no one has, so I have to assume it's just coincidence. But there is just so much swirling around this movie with West Side Story that I... As you can tell, my brain went down this weird connections rabbit, rabbit hole. hole of West Side Story connections, which is, you know, wonderful. We can assume, I think, uh, by this, that the tickets to the play that he's going to see have to be West Side Story. And, you know, all of this was intentional. I think it's I think it's clear at this point that Bernard Herrmann was intentionally putting in all these seeds of West Side Story, and you are the first one to have discovered it, and I'm so proud of you for doing it. It's wonderful. But yeah, it's a, it, it had to have been in his subconscious mind at least, If and it's not surprising that it would influence what he was doing. So it's fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah, and all of it would seem a lot less wild if it was not so clear that Cary Grant had tickets to see exactly West Side Story. Because West Side Story ran for like two and a half years 
Mm-hmm. So it was what was at the Winter Garden for the entire production of this film. That makes sense. And uh, and only closed three days before it was released. Right. So that it's what they would have had to have had on mind. Assuming they thought about it. And it's not just a weird coincidence. That's okay. Uh, weird co- coincidences are one of the big things that film is built on. It's fine. <laughs> That's true. All right. So let's move into our into some of our scenes here. Okay. So the first scene that I wanted to talk about is, or I guess it's sort of multiple scenes, is this sequence where he goes to the hotel and then goes to the UN. And so part of what I wanted to talk about is the this is the threshold of, this is like minutes 30 to 40 of the movie. And the first 40 minutes do this thing that I love when movies do there because there's no exposition because your our protagonist doesn't know anything that's going on so there's nothing for them to tell us and everything that Cary Grant's character is figuring out we figure out with him other than of course like the scenes with his secretary where we establish his ordinary world and so I love that we we get this this scene in the hotel where there there's all these clues being dropped of um oh no we've never what what's the person that he's trying to track down's name or that he's been mistaken for he's been uh, George Kaplan Kaplan yeah so there there are all these weird comments of no we've never met a George Kaplan we've never seen a George Kaplan it's so nice to finally meet you, Mr. Kaplan. And all of these clues being dropped where you can see Cary Grant just being like, what is going on? And we, as the audience, are also all wondering what is going on. And the <laughs> it is a little strange how much the suit is talked about in this film. There's so much time talking about this suit. It's just over and over and over that he's you know having the suit you know taking to valets and you know he's getting dirty and just there's a lot of time spent talking about the suit yeah and the <laughs> i guess the this was noticed by people this suit is in a lot of lists as the greatest suit in movie history <laughs> and there have been articles and articles and articles written about this suit. Uh, <laughs> one of them described it as a lightweight, single-breasted gray flannel suit. It is ventless with three-button fastening and notched lapels. The trousers have forward pleats, and the suit is complemented with oxblood leather derby shoes and a gray silk tie. And the one of the reasons this suit is so lauded is because they were really wanting to go for a timeless suit feel. And I, I do have to say, like, when I was watching it before, like, before I had done any reading about how famous this suit is, it definitely worked. I definitely had the feeling of, oh, man, <laughs> people looked good back in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a, That suit does look good. And, uh, you know, you, you see basically this same suit design show up over and over again like especially in james bond movies 
Um, mm-hmm. I think it was a direct influence. Yeah, there. it's a. I think when you the Sean Connery suits seem to be just almost exact replicas of this suit. That's amazing. I you know I didn't think about this. It's I just noticed that he kept men you know talking about this suit, but it really is iconic and. When I pulled up a picture here as you were talking and just looking at it, you know, I just want to wear that suit. I really do. It fits him really nicely. And uh, with that little gray tie that he's got on there, uh, it's just, he, he does. He looks great in it. Yeah, he does. And I think they, it's the only real justification that I can think of for that very strange line he has in the beginning where he says to his secretary that he's like feeling a little big or a little fat i can't remember exactly what the line is and he's like put a sticky note on my desk that says think thin (laughs) doesn't he say i'm feeling large-ish or something like that maybe that's what it is yeah Yeah. i think yeah it's definitely not fat Uh, think thin uh i i find it so fascinating like the the way that carrie grant's character is put together as this madison avenue type that Mm -hmm. at, at the time period people just had an idea and they understood what what that meant and he's his lifestyle is really on display here and you see just the way that he approaches the world the the suits and the idea he has this line at the beginning you'll have to remind me of exactly what he says but something along the lines of uh it it doesn't matter if it's a lie it's oh i can't remember how the line goes this is right after he lies to the to the cab driver about his... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, it doesn't matter if it's a lie, they get to feel good about themselves or yeah, something Yeah, it doesn't like matter that. if it's a lie, they get to feel good about themselves. And then the, this whole idea that he's he's putting on a show with this suit, and it, it feels like the suit just makes him feel like this confident person in these entire situations it amazes me how confident he approaches every situation in this film despite the fact that he has absolutely no reason to be because he is entirely out of his depth out of his depth for the entire film <laughs> uh he has no reason to be confident at any moment and yet he is yeah and the since we're talking about him being a marketing agent this was also a direct influence for don draper and Mad Men as well that's an, yeah like they They've they've cited this character and of course the suit as well. This this makes sense. I mean, that's what I had in my mind. I was thinking Don Draper, and you know, it's uh, that's so interesting. And Don Draper was thinking Cary Grant. Look at that. It's it's amazing. So both the so a lot of the hotel shooting was done on location, and then after after the hotel, he ends up going to going to the UN where they did some shooting on location but i guess they they had some trouble getting it cleared and so they told them like they had a very specific window where they could film exterior shots before like 9am or something like that and i think the first day someone was late and so there there's only actually a couple of exterior un shots and then everything else uh they took pictures inside the un s- surreptitiously so that they could recreate the 
recreate those scenes back back in california back on the lot oh, wow that's that's an alfred hitchcock move right there just sneak into the un and take pictures so that you can sneak them out yeah. in order to make your movie about people sneaking you know microfilm out of the country but i also really like it's clear how much security has changed since 1959 yeah. because there is no world nowadays where someone would be able to just say oh i'm here for a meeting with <laughs> this person and that person doesn't know who you are and you get get a meeting with them not to mention someone being able to sneak a knife sneak in, in yeah. a knife that they're, <laughs> and yeah. just throw the knife from across the room and kill them in the back oh yeah that was amazing yeah it's it's pretty pretty wild and then the this scene ends with that amazing far away shot which I was sad to learn was faked like they they did or not faked but they didn't do it like on site of the aerial shot of Cary Grant running diagonal uh diagonal down out of the UN and it's from like I don't know 40 stories up or something like that yeah it's it's a very good shot the the other thing that I love about these scenes here is that he's just dragging his mom along to all of these scenes. <laughs> like, when he goes to investigate the hotel, he's like, come on in, Mom, and then, you know, just looking through everything, and she just doesn't believe him, thinks he's just making up everything. She's like, oh, yeah, I know how you are, Roger. Just, you know, this is just the kind of guy you are, making stuff up. And he's like, no, I'm serious, look. Um, goes to the UN, and then somebody gets murdered, and, you know, I don't know. Uh, life spirals well, out of and control. That's- what what's even worse is he so he drags his mom to the to the hotel and then he traps the guys on the elevator as he runs off and you know lets all the women off first and then he jumps into a cab and just leaves his mom stranded there and that's the last time you hear from his mom for the whole movie bye mom yeah that's it hopefully you don't get murdered yeah will i see you for dinner at least Oh, it's it's great. Uh, this is this is the kind of thing that uh, that as I was watching, I just kept thinking like uh, a modern action movie just wouldn't approach this story in that kind of way because he's so nonchalant mm-hmm. about it. It's there's there's a lot of suspense and thrill as you're trying to figure out the mystery behind this story, but I didn't find the the villains to be super terrifying because they just didn't seem to care about like. His mom and Leverage just sitting there on the sidewalk and just leaving her behind. And they just, you know, continue chasing after him. And they go to the UN, throw the knife, and then he's holding the body there. And they're just like, well, we solved it. The the problem's over now. We'll just go home, pack up the bags, wash our hands, and we're good to go. Well, to be fair, the, it's not like they can really use the mom as Leverage because what are they going to do? Text him? Like, text him a picture? That's a good point. They have no way of getting in touch with him. Yeah, that's a good point. That's true. And then the the other thing I wanted to ask you is only somewhat tangentially related to this scene. So immediately after this, then we get our first scene inside the FBI or the CIA or what have you, wherever this, uh, whoever this alphabet agency is. And it's the first time that we as the audience are brought in on a little bit of the secret. So I think the only information we get here really is that Kaplan does not exist. 
And I was curious, do you think they would have put, if they were making this film now, do you think they would have put this scene so early in the movie? I, I don't think you would have. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock had this belief, which I think is accurate, that uh, when you're putting together a thriller and you're trying to build up the suspense, there's there's a conventional wisdom that you want to keep information from the audiences and Alfred Hitchcock believed instead that you should be giving out more information to the audience um, and giving kind of this constant dribble and have the characters finding out information just after the audience does. And it seems like that's what he's trying to do here is give a little bit of information to the audience and then have Roger Thornhill figure this stuff out afterwards but the the problem for me with this scene is it gives you the information just so directly uh and it doesn't make you feel Mm -hmm. clever that you're figuring it out before the character does it just feels like the the um the filmmakers thought you know people are going to be too stupid when they come in here to figure out that to figure out exactly what's going on so let's just tell them here but then additionally roger thornhill doesn't find this information out till something like 30 or 40 minutes later into the film where he realizes that George Kaplan's not a real person. And I think that you could have doled out this information in um, more indirect, kind of um, careful ways, and I think a modern action film would do that. At the same time, I don't think it's a mistake that that Alfred Hitchcock is doing this. It's just, you know, he doesn't have the benefit of 60 more years of action films and thrillers, <laughs> thriller films to see how to pace this and how and what audiences are going to be able to understand and be able to uh, be able to uh, process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about this scene? I just, you know, throughout this entire thing, I will say I was very i don't know that concerned is the right word because i didn't wasn't actually worried about roger thornhill getting you know killed or whatever it might be but i was i was wondering what is going on with this guy and why is how are they like what is the plan of these villains and uh mm-hmm. it was it was really kind of difficult to try and piece together what exactly was going on and the part that really got me was when he goes back over to the house and they just like know his name and per- put on this performance for the cops like oh yeah no he came and did this party and it was totally fine and uh yeah roger thornhill and then he goes to the un and it's a completely different guy and i'm like they just broke into the guy's house and pretend like stage actors in there for the police when they came or whatever it might be and what what are these people up to and what what are the depths of their connections and it turns out you know it's it's this spy with like four employees um later on yeah. later on in the story but it sure felt like this was like a global conspiracy going on oh yeah and the the moment where he shows up and it's like oh it that's a different person than who who i've seen before was that was a great moment yeah, yeah. It, and it and it's the height of audience confusion because you're only a couple minutes away from getting let in on a little bit of the secret right at that moment when the guy walks up and is like yeah that's who i am i mean i just exclaimed i said oh shit that's that's (laughs) not him what's going on and then boom knifed and he's dead i'm like okay well this just you know scaled up a notch this is uh has gotten much more exciting all of a sudden all right and the next thing that i wanted to talk about or i guess sequence because it's uh a bunch of different scenes is 
this part where Cary Grant is getting getting out of the city, and including they did a lot of on-site shooting at Grand Central Station, which is pretty cool if it's if it's anywhere you've ever been. And honestly, <laughs> doesn't really look a lot different, <laughs> which is pretty wild. But so this scene is where he he meets his his lady co-star on the train. So he he runs past the ticketing agent and then sneaks on sneaks onto the train. And uh, what's her name? Eva. Uh, Eva Marie Saint. Eva Marie Saint, and he he sneaks into the bathroom and. She covers for him when the cops come by, and <laughs> I loved the I loved their delivery when he comes out and he thanks her and he says seven unpaid parking tickets <laughs> and she just says oh <laughs> uh, and yeah that part's great I really thought all of their dialogue for all of this was was just so they did such a good job with it and it is. If if anyone has ever taken like a beginning acting class or anything like that, this is not easy dialogue to sell, and they just do such a good job with it. And I I really felt like, especially in the dining room scene where Cary Grant goes after and meets her, and you know she's like, "It's not luck that you're here. I gave the porter five dollars to to have him seat you with me if you came in." The I, I I felt like their their dialogue chemistry was was really really great. The chemistry is really good, and Ava Marie Saint just absolutely delivers. She she does mm-hmm. a great job with this film, and it is a hard role to perform, especially because the kind of development of this femme fatale kind of character doesn't. Again, this is kind of in some ways a beginning for that character. Uh, and will get developed with, you know, Bond movies especially. And yeah. she just puts together a really fascinating character with a lot of really interesting choices. And I love her performance in this film. I thought she was brilliant. Yeah, I, I think she does a really great job. And I don't know if you read somewhere, but they... The, this is a pretty steamy scene between them on on the train. And it's one of the... One of the nice things about having a film that was released in the 50s is is it something like they sort of have to be talking in innuendo because it just wouldn't, anything more explicit just wouldn't be allowed at the yeah, time. wouldn't get past the Hays Code and the censors, yeah. Yeah, which uh, I don't know if you read this, but there was a line that they had to go back and overdub because it was too racy. She says, I never discuss love on an empty stomach. And once I read it, if you go back and watch, you can see where the overdub is. But the original line was, I never make love on an empty stomach. Nice. They they couldn't get it, couldn't get it passed. So they had to, had to overdub it. But that's an, that's an interesting choice from her uh, to never make love on an, uh, on an empty stomach. But you know, it's uh, (laughs) a... 
but you know, uh, everybody's got their own thing, right? And I did not. Uh, so her performance is wonderful, but uh, I did not buy the character's performance here for one second. She comes in and starts talking mm-hmm. to him, and I'm like, mm, "She's a spy. She's she is she is in on this. Something is going on. There is no reason. I mean, Cary Grant is a good-looking guy, and especially at the time th- period, he's a real hot heartthrob. But at the same time, I just did not trust her, and I thought she was shady right from the moment she showed up. And she brings him in, just you know, gradually gets more and more kind of sexually aggressive, aggressive with him. And Cary Grant just eats it up. He's like, "Yeah, why not? Like, of course, this woman's just gonna see me on the train and be totally into me. Who wouldn't?" Uh, and you know, goes back to her room with her, uh, hides in the luggage compartment, which was one of my favorite shots of the movie, where he's like jumping or crawling out of the luggage compartment. Is just is I find it just hilarious the way that this the that this comes down. Anyway, it's it's a great performance. Uh, I really like their chemistry here, and it's not until later on in the film, once he kind of figures out what's what's up with her, that then I kind of you know uh, it bumps up against me. But at this part, I I was into it. I was invested in this relationship. Yeah, and oddly, I. I really like their dialogue chemistry together. I feel like it's very hot and sizzly. But then once they once they start kissing in her in her train car room, for some reason that didn't really sizzle for me. That didn't really do it. I felt like they didn't they didn't seem like they were enjoying kissing each other very much. <laughs> uh, makes sense. Yeah, I I can see that. It's just I don't know like. I, I kind of have to put on my suspenders of uh, of disbelief whenever I go into these older films and the way that the the romance scenes are are filmed because I know there's not a lot of you know nowadays there's a lot of choreography that goes into intimate scenes mm-hmm. and I think probably they didn't have much of that uh, and they're just figuring out as it goes. One of the things that I love about Ava Marie Saint here is she has so much poise and so much. I don't know, this kind of demure confidence that she approaches uh, the scenes with. And also, she just looks fabulous in, the, like, that white blouse with, like, the the skirt. And, um, I don't know, I thought she looked really good in the train car scene. Um, and uh, I thought they looked really good together. And They're a very handsome couple, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, a very handsome couple. Uh, and it, it... But the other part of it for me is that it seemed like, to me that Cary Grant's kind of just getting into it, or his character, Roger Thornhill, but that she's kind of has him a little bit of a distance, even though she's uh, becoming intimate with him because she's putting on a performance. So that's also the way that I read it as I was watching the film. So I think I picked up on some of that awkwardness and hesitancy, but to me, as I read it, it seemed like she's not as into it as he is, but because she's kind of playing him. Yeah, and I think as as we'll later learn, she's also a professional trying to do her job. And so I think some of that is her warring with herself because she does like she has a job to do as the CIA, FBI, American agent spy, but she's also falling for Thornhill in his immaculate suit. <laughs> his immaculate suit and his uh, witty uh witty jokes so i did so you said 
basically as soon as he runs into her on the train, your alarm bells were going off for for her not not being what she seemed. Oh, yeah. When when did you get when did you start to figure out the second twist that she was actually the undercover that she's actually agent. a double agent. Oh yeah. Uh, as soon as he goes back to like right after the crop duster scene, when he goes back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's at that point, uh, what I thought and what I told Lori was, uh, Oh, she's George Kaplan. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I thought the twist was going to be. Uh, I thought they were going to reveal that, that she's been going around and using this name to like get into hotels and do all of that, uh, to do all of that stuff. Um, which is kind of the premise, but not quite exactly what's happening. But yeah, right at that moment, uh, as soon as he goes back, she opens the door and the look she has on her face when he gets back from the crop duster sequence, it, it all connected right at that moment. Got it. Um, there were just two other things that I wanted to mention about this scene. One of them is that the, we've talked a lot about the influence that this had on James Bond films, and train sequences would be no no different. There were... I, I went through and looked, and I believe seven of the 25 James Bond movies have train scenes. But there's one from, I believe it's from Live and Let Die, the first Roger Moore film, that feels like it's really a direct homage to this. Like, the the train car looks very similar. The girl that Bond is with the, ends up getting locked in the above compartment while he fights whoever the bad guy is that that fights him in that scene and so yeah i just wanted to mention mention that because it felt very familiar to me but then when there was no fight scene i was like oh that must have been a james bond movie not not this makes sense yeah (laughs) Uh, and then the last thing is this is just a service for for our listeners, because I know you will not provide it, but uh, Thornhill orders a Gibson in the train car, and I know we're you know about an hour in, but should you want to drink along, a Gibson is two and a half ounces of vodka or gin, combined with half an ounce of dry vermouth. And probably, I guess I didn't look it up, but I'm guessing it's stirred over ice and then strained. And then what makes it the Gibson is the garnish is a cocktail onion. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I I'd yeah, commented I, I to should you, have prepared mine. I'd commented to you that, you know, this is one of the drunkest movies we have we have watched so far. You reminded me that we had Pete's Dragon, which is, you know, amazingly still more drunk than this movie but there is a lot of alcohol that's consumed in north by northwest yeah dude dude can consumes an entire bottle of bourbon an entire bottle and <laughs> oh yeah and then everywhere he goes he's just like yeah let's get a drink um as as soon as he walks in uh it was the most remarkable thing when he walks in and you see her face and she's like oh he's alive and then he walks into the room this is after the crop duster scene and he's just like, well, let's get a drink. And she goes and starts making it a drink. And I'm like, sure, okay, that's where, you know, that's the time period we're at. That's the way things are. Why not? It sounds wonderful. All right, let's move on to, uh, I think it's pretty obvious what our last two scenes are going to be here. But let's talk about this this crop duster sequence. The 
the most famous part of the film, I, I would guess. And for me, it's the part of the, the, the scene from the film that, uh, in my mind, holds up the best out of any other scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, from start to finish, once he gets off the bus and he's standing there, and he's in the middle of nowhere, gotten instructions from Ava Marie Saint's character to, to go over in the middle of nowhere and meet George Kaplan, the contact. And he's just standing there, sees somebody else across the way. He's like, waves to him. The guy kind of ignores him. He walks over, hey, you know, are you George Kaplan or whatever? He says, no, I'm just waiting for the bus. Uh, The bus comes, takes off. (laughs) No, he says, he says, can't say that I am because I ain't. (laughs) Can't say that I am because I ain't. (laughs) Um, Yeah, great, great lines there. Um, He hops on the bus and drives away. And then, oh, they see that plane that's driving around Dustin the crops, and he's like, hmm, that's weird. That plane's uh, uh, Dustin crops where there ain't no crops. Gets on the bus and leaves. Bum, bum. And then he's just, like, watching the plane as it's getting closer and watching it. And I know that this is exactly what I would do in the same situation. Like, is that plane coming towards me? No, it can't be. But is it? No. And then he realizes kind of at this last second, he's about to get killed by this plane and its propeller uh, driving straight towards him. Uh, it's convenient that there's no guns or anything. Or do they have guns later in the shot? Don't shoot him at him at this well, point. I don't, I don't know. There's like certainly some explosions that go around, like stuff that pops around him. But I just can't imagine it's guns or explode. I think it's supposed to just be like from the force of the plane getting so close. To that him. makes sense. Yeah, it's a little unclear. So, but in any case, he starts running away from the plane as the plane is chasing him down, uh, and it is an iconic scene for a reason. It's been uh, recreated in a lot of different, uh, a lot of different films, and it's just fun and how he's having to like dodge underneath this plane multiple times as it's swooping down try to uh, to try to get him and the way that he ends up defeating the plane by running over towards a gas tanker and it crashes into it and then the whole thing explodes is just you know a cherry on top to a perfect little action scene yeah and there's there's a lot of green screen work in this movie that looks like you can tell it's a green screen and it looks pretty dated at this point but this scene at least for me was not one of them like i (laughs) but maybe it's dumb but like i still had to google like did they green screen that airplane even though like of course they did like how else could they have done it but there was a part of my brain that was like well maybe hitchcock was crazy enough that (laughs) Yeah, I mean that's the, Hitchcock for you. You did. never know. Keeps on keeps you on right. your toes. But yeah, I th- I thought this green screen just looked looked great. Like yeah, I think it holds up. The, and there's also it. It's easy to go unnoticed because of the fireworks of the plane and then the collision. But all of the establishing shots for this scene are so great yeah they're they're it opens with it opens with like a 30 second shot of just the bus driving and it's from it's from an aerial it's from far away the bus driving down the road carrie grant gets out the bus drives away and that whole like it takes about 30 seconds for it to do all of that and then you get like all of these pov shots of of thornhill you know, watching cars come and go and seeing 
the person who you mentioned come and get off and and all of that and i was you know i like as i said i saw this so long ago and i know about the the crop dust like the plane flying over his head sequence but then when the plane flies into the tanker i was like wait what they did that for this film it's great yeah it, it, it and it looks so good it does and i did i did look it up i found someone who did like a breakdown of it and the, the what they what they did that makes it look so good is there's a couple sequences where they flash to or a couple shots both of them less than a second where they flash to model plane and model truck Mm. but because they cut so quickly your brain just doesn't have time to register it as that so you really it's really just the approach shot of the plane almost hitting the truck and then the next thing you know is you're seeing the set piece of of the explosion and the fire and even with this knowledge going it's like watching a magic trick like even going back and watching it it is I, I I wasn't it took me like three or four watches to be able to figure out where the where the sleight of hand was coming from. It's an incredibly clever cut. It really is. The the other thing that I love about this scene is just like you can break down the anatomy of uh of an action scene just by looking at this one with um first every modern action scene kind of starts with this establishing shot where you get a sense of the space and where all of this is happening mm-hmm. and you know they show you this big just empty space with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide except for those crops you know that's the best that you can get but even then is just this big empty space and then once the action starts happening you see the the character um discovering these things that we have just been shown about the about the blocking and the staging and the establishment uh there's nowhere really for him to hide he just kind of jumps in the dirt a few times runs into the into the crops and then runs back out and makes it towards this gas tanker but and then ends with this you know this finale explosive finale with the uh exploding gas tank that he kind of uh, walks away from and so many scenes that tie into modern action scenes yeah and i should mention the other thing they do as that plane is barreling in on the tanker is you the the thing that's happening simultaneously is that truck is bearing down on Cary grant so it's just yeah. like a whole bunch of cuts and it it's really hard to get your bearing unless you really disassociate yourself because it's really stressful. There's a truck. There's a truck coming at you. You know, for sure, for sure. And then the dolly zoom that they're doing when he's like running towards the camera as they're uh, pulling away, uh, with the plane kind of coming closer and closer towards him. Uh, great shot. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is just iconic. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why it always shows up as among the best shots ever in cinema, and it it holds up. It's really good. Yeah. Super, super duper fun. Do you have anything else you want to say about this scene or should we move on to our, our climax? The climax, the finale. All right. So at this point in the movie, 
Um, he says goodbye to his girlfriend, and then he's going to go climb El Capitan <laughs> without a rope. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, if if we had a nickel for uh, each time one of the movies we watched ended with the climax of someone <laughs> climbing, you know, free solo on a national monument, we'd have two nickels, which is, you know, uh, not a lot of money, but it's uh, it's interesting that it's happened twice. It's a strange coincidence for sure. Yeah. And yeah, very, very strange. Uh, and what a weird choice for a final set piece. When I saw they were going to Mount Rushmore and I'm, I just thought like, are they just going to climb on the faces of these people? Yes. That is where the final fight is going to happen is on the, I can't remember whose face it is there that, that they're on. Um, is it George Washington or Lincoln or somebody? They're like on the face and on the nose as they're having this final fight. And, you know, that is an action piece, set piece, if I have ever seen an action set piece. So this this was actually the... This was like the entire reason for being for the entire mm-hmm. movie. Hitchcock had wanted to do a climax of a movie on Mount Rushmore and everything else about the movie swirled around that for a long time he had he had this like weird desire to have a scene where someone was hiding i think it was in lincoln's nose yeah and then he gets found out because he sneezes and he wanted to call the film like in lincoln's nose or something like that (laughs) oh geez uh, yeah, I mean, Hitchcock, he's got wild ideas, <laughs> it's, it's, for sure. Uh, the only other film I could think of where the climax takes place on, on Mount Rushmore was National Treasure 2, where there's a hidden, you know, Templar uh, vault in Mount Rushmore. Um, but I don't know, It's uh, the lead-up to this scene is really fascinating, too, though, um, with this scene where he's climbing on the outside of the building, uh, it makes its way in and then communicates to Ava Marie Saint uh, that they're on to her and then kind of uh, runs away from the gun with the blanks and they make their way over to the edge of the mountain and over the side onto Mount Rushmore. It's it's a well-constructed scene and there's these really great, beautiful shots uh, in the woods in this area. And uh, mm-hmm. those were some... My favorite shot of the movie is just before this when they pull the two cars up in the woods... And they're just, like, facing each other through the woods while that FBI agent is, like, sitting in the car. And that, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah that yeah. shot's absolutely gorgeous. But, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of really interesting choices. And the idea of this, like, mansion that's just on Mount Rushmore was also, you know, really interesting to me. There's just, everybody knows there's this guy that lives in this huge mansion right at the top of Mount Rushmore. Where else would he live, right? Where else, yeah. And they, I guess there was a lot of controversy about them filming this year, even though they they obviously tried to get permission to film, like, on the monument itself and uh, were denied. But even just the amount of filming that they did around the area in the uh, gift shop, or uh, not the gift shop, the cafeteria and a few other nearby locations caused a lot of sturm and drang in south dakota they were like very upset that they were going to be disrespecting their monument and showing people climbing all over it and typically alfred hitchcock did did not care at all (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, they have those shots, like, in the lodge, and it seems like a lot of those people are just tourists that are visiting Mount Rushmore that suddenly, you know, are finding themselves on a movie. It's a... Oops. Yeah, it's it's a fun one. And I love just the audacity of of having this action sequence in such a ridiculous location. And as you said... This this is kind of the anatomy of the the modern action movie is this idea of action set pieces that are going to happen in different places with the plot kind of moving you from action set piece to action set piece. And that's really what this film is trying to do, especially from, you know, basically the train forward uh, getting through the different uh, the different places and ending up on uh, Mount Rushmore. I thought it looked great. The rat and the Mount Rushmore shots. They oh, it does. Yeah, yeah. The, like on the rocks. They had to build this in the set, but it looks it looks really really good. Uh, and I found it you know not entirely convincing. There were some parts where uh, I was seeing it and I thought, oh, that that has to be a set. Um, and before I looked it up later, but it's pretty convincing. And if you're not looking closely. Um, I think it would. Uh, it's easy to bend the disbelief that they're just actually there on Mount Rushmore, having this, you know, climb and chase and knife fight on the top of this mountain. Yeah, if, or if you um, <laughs> if you watched it when you were twelve or thirteen, then it's it's really easy to get to get bamboozled by it. Do you the additionally the there there were all of the. I don't know what to call them, but the the shots showing the distance over the ledge, which, mm-hmm. while not quite as convincing as the free solo ones, I still, I guess there were some that looked not so great, but there were at least quite a few that were like, oh man, looks really good. <laughs> yeah, it it really did. I mean, it gave me a little bit of vertigo, so it it was it yeah. convinced my brain. You know, my my conscious brain knew that they they were not dangling over them over you know this massive height but my subconscious brain did not believe it uh and it was convinced and felt like it was going over the edge at any moment and then i i felt like there's when she falls off the edge and he's like reaches out and grabs her hand Mm -hmm. uh it reminded me so much and i wondered if this was a deliberate homage to uh indiana jones and the last crusade where uh, if you remember they're like holding the girl's hand as she's about to fall into the pit and I was worried. It looked like she had some kind of glove on. And I was like, oh, no, is her glove going to come off? Is she gone? Um, and it's it's a great little shot there because they do this jump cut to the, to the train at the end of the movie where he's, like, pulling yeah. her up into the bed. And it just cuts all of a sudden. You're like, oh, they made it. They're alive. Okay. Woo, we did it. So it's such a great jump cut. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's I had just happened to pause the movie. I can't remember like maybe i just needed to refill my water or something and i was like how are they gonna end this movie in five minutes (laughs) i don't know (laughs) and they do it with that jump cut and then the whole thing's over 30 seconds later (laughs) and it's done that's it (laughs) and then the train drives into the mountain off it goes yeah the train drives into the mountain (laughs) uh this the i did not pick up on it because i'm a dunce but the i i guess the train driving into the mountain is was expressly phallic on uh on hitchcock's part and he was very pleased by 
this little devilish sexual innuendo. He said it was like the greatest stunt he had ever pulled or something like that. Um, Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, that it sounds like him. But overall, it's just a well-constructed scene. Uh, I love the the end of this movie. The it's so audacious and ridiculous and wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about this, or should we move into cleanup? Let's move into cleanup. All right. I just got one other thing that I wanted to mention, which is there are. I know we went on our weird roundabout West Side Story deep dive earlier, but there are several other musical references in this movie all of which struck me as a little strange so when he's drunk in the car he's he sings i've grown accustomed to my bourbon or i've grown grown accustomed to your bourbon which i assume was to the tune of i've grown accustomed to your face from my fair lady though though a bit off key and you know because he's so drunk uh, I didn't notice this until you pointed it out, but yeah, it's it seems like an obvious reference. Well, and I thought what well, once he did that because at this point I hadn't looked up what was in the Winter Garden, and I was like, oh, I guess it was My Fair Lady, like it must have been, but it was not. And then she in the train car, she says, "Come out, come out, wherever you are." I think that's her. I wrote the quote down. I think that's where it was, uh, which is. A reference to uh, Dorothy when she lands in Oz to the to the Munchkins, and then he's whistling "Singing in the Rain" in the shower. Yeah, it's a I caught the "Singing in the Rain" man, uh, reference when he was in the shower, but he's using it to completely throw her off. It's great. I know, so clever. I I wonder if this um, I wonder if it's because Ernest Lehman what like had written in musicals so i wonder if they were just references that tickled him it seems like it to me yeah there's there's a lot of references he must have uh just been into it and you know these musicals are all mega blockbusters at the time right these it's not like nowadays where a musical comes out and you know it's always going to do like a middling box office performance at the time period these ones were big highly anticipated films so Certainly Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain, and My Fair Lady was on Broadway in 57, and it was a mega hit, but the movie wouldn't come out until 64, right. so so this is predating the My Fair Lady movie. That makes sense, yeah. Did you have anything for cleanup? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one of them was the car chase scene, which is, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. uh, barely a tr- <laughs> car chase, and he's drunk the entire time, and it's long. And it is he just keeps driving and nearly crashing into pretty much everybody. Um, and just the idea, the, the car chase doesn't really get invented until about 10 years later, I think in 1968, with the movie Bullet. So this is like mm-hmm. one of the, the oldest extant, you know, car chase scenes. And it's ridiculous, but, you know, it's great. The other one that I found, oh. Oh, go ahead. It, oh, it's definitely ridiculous. I did want to ask you, how did, um, because all of the major action sequences here are scored with that main theme that we talked about at the beginning, the one that switches between the 3, 4, and 6, 8. Did did you, I, I really liked it because I kind of 
like the loud bombastic symphonic stuff but it would be easy for me to see like how it would just be too much for someone and i was wondering how how you felt about it i you know i noticed it and i noticed that there was uh, music going on and that it was adding to the tension but it didn't feel too bombastic to me at all it just made sense okay, to me especially cool. because he's like drunk and is trying to add the tension you're trying to get his emotions going so it, it worked for me for me for sure Okay, yeah, awesome. Um, the other, so yep. this auction scene where he, you know, outsmarts <laughs> oh, yeah. the villains by just being, you know, incredibly annoying. I loved it. It's just great. It is pretty great. Uh, such a great way to outsmart the villains. Just too annoying for them to handle. And then the other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly is, you know, this film takes place on Mount Rushmore, which is part of the Black Hills. And, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of movement from indigenous peoples around Mount Rushmore and the way this land was kind of gained and faces carved into it and kind of the disrespect for the sacred land that belongs to the indigenous tribes in the area. And I just wanted to mention that with the scene taking place there. Yeah, if I can find any resources or anything for that, I'll, I'll plop it in, in the show notes for sure. Because it is definitely something to to think about. And I actually wasn't aware of it until you mentioned it right now. So I'm glad you did. There you go. And then finally, just a little little Easter egg here. I'm, I don't know if you're aware, but Alfred Hitchcock, it's one of the things that really made me like fall in love with his movies as a kid. Always like to do little little cameos in his movie. In his movies, it's just a sort of nice little Easter egg if you're in the know. I think some people don't like it because it's a little what's the word? Breaking the fourth wall. E- or No, like egocentric oh, yeah. to do. Yeah. Um but I, I've always kind of liked it and his his appearance at this movie happens right at the very beginning where he tries to run onto a bus and I think it's a bus in New York and the doors close right in front of him. It's a scene that means absolutely nothing. And it just happens within, like, the first 30 seconds of the movie. I love it. It's great. I'm a big fan of those kinds of scenes, so, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. All right. So that will do it for North by Northwest. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you want to get with it, get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and we'd love to hear what you thought about your time travel back to 1959 or what you thought about the podcast, anything you liked or anything you didn't like, any suggestions that you have for the future. We would love to hear those. And of course, if you want to write more than 280 characters or you just don't like the Bird app, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com that's podcaststreamit at gmail.com and we're both on instagram we post there as well oh i guess i can put the put the links in the show notes and people people can find us you can contact us and and you can further develop uh zach's conspiracy theory about the connections of the musicals and you know keep going down the rabbit hole Oh, yes. If you have more West Side Story connections for North by Northwest, please, 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 please let me know. Because I, yeah, I've got a whole whole contraption in my office with all of the little <laughs> threads going back and forth 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to add some more. And so next week, ooh, next week we are going to be going back to 1980 and watching Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining, which will be will be pretty exciting. And but, oh, and before we go into closing questions, I do want to give a shout out and a thank you to our friend and friend of the podcast, uh, David Stewart Asturial, who has a been our beta listener for all of the episodes, but also has been helping out with editing as well. So thanks a lot to David. And with that, why don't we do closing questions? Sounds good. I'm ready to go with mine. Go Should first? I go first? All right. Yeah, you can okay. go first. Okay. Um, so my question is, if you were putting together just the the most interesting, fascinating, wildest action set piece, where would you set this? Where would you set a fight at? Hmm. I think. Can I do it like on a a roller coaster? Sure, this is the magic of the movies. You can do anything. Yeah, assuming it's tenable, I would do it on a roller coaster. I feel like that would be pretty exciting. Although you could also go a little bigger and just do like an entire theme park. And so it sort of like starts on a Ferris wheel and then goes in and around the the carousel and then it ends on <laughs> by jumping on and off you know a 40 mile an hour roller coaster or something that like sounds that. amazing uh you, you know what i want to see this with is some kind of marvel team up where you've got the falcon and shang chi fighting somebody on this roller coaster at this theme park uh flying in between the trellises and shang chi just like jumping between uh uh, train carts and all of that stuff. I don't know. That sounds awesome to me. It does sound awesome. You know, I did realize that I totally lied at the beginning of the podcast when I said we went to the movies to see Shang-Chi because we didn't. We watched it on Disney Plus and then we went to the movies to see James Bond. That's right, yeah. So, I, yeah. Makes sense. It was just a little Alfred Hitchcock twist there at the Ta-da! end. Ta-da! Surprise! Of the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> what about you? Where would you do your set? Yeah, you know... I've I've kind of been thinking and building in my head an action set piece in a high school classroom. Because I spent a lot of time in a high school Ooh. classroom. And so I've looked around and thought, you know, if supervillains were to attack my high school classroom, what things would I use in here to try to defend myself? You know, there's the stapler over there, the pencil sharpener over there. There's, you know, the cabinets and the ruler and the, you know, projector, the screen that it goes on. And you could get some really interesting little, uh, some really interesting little sequences in there. Yeah, especially if you put a, um, like a science lab in the classroom next door. Oh, yeah, for sure. That'd be great. Usually they're not in the same building, but you know what? It's it's the magic of the movies. We can make this work. Yeah. Uh all right, my I'm very proud of my question, but I wish I had gone first because it's not as exciting as your question. <laughs> All right. So so in this movie, our our boy Cary Grant gets a handle of bourbon shoved down his throat and then he gets arrested for a DUI. And on the one hand, it's like, "Oh, hey, cool. I didn't I hadn't thought about it, but it's kind of nice that they had DUIs that early." But then his mom says, just pay the $2, Roger. 
And I was like, oh my goodness, was the fine for a DUI only $2? And so then I looked it up and I was like, because of course inflation, you know, $2 in 1959 translated to translates to $19.01 today. So my question for you, if you're going to tell someone, you want to explain to them how cheap a DUI was in 1959 what modern day 19 dollar thing are you going to compare it to um you're gonna say i i got a good answer for this one okay that is about the exact price that it costs for me to buy one ticket to the movies Oh, no, that was my answer. Oh, no, it's your answer as well. I love it. That's great. Uh, yeah, whenever I go to the IMAX movies, it is about, uh, it is 1950 for my tickets. Yeah, it was uh, when we saw, we didn't see I'm James Bond in IMAX, but we did see it in, like, one of the fancy theaters where they buy you, bring you drinks and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was $18. Look at that. We're on the same page. That's remarkable. Look at that. We are, and I suppose it is thematically linked to the podcast. That makes sense. So, DUI in uh, in 1959 would cost the same amount as going to a movie. Now, what is remarkable to me about this is that he decides he's going to take it all the way to court for that 1950. Um, <laughs> to clear his name. Yeah. I mean... I mean, I don't, I don't know. Just because it was only $2, I don't know what it did to your driving record or anything. I'm guessing not much because, you know, it was less than 20 bucks or whatever. Yeah, but. I imagine so. <laughs> All right. So that'll do it for us this week, and we'll chat with you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.